Welcome to KSBC 88.7 FM. Today we celebrate Indigenous Peoples Day, a day in which we broadcast and amplify music, interviews, and media by Indigenous folks, along with content that brings awareness to the violence of settler colonialism and resistance movements in opposition. It's important to first acknowledge that we currently reside on occupied Tongva land here in Claremont, California. Dr. Yuki Amaile is a Kanaka Maoli scholar, activist, and practitioner from Maunawili, Oahu. He is an assistant professor of Indigenous politics in the Department of Political Science, affiliate faculty in the Center of Indigenous Studies at the University of Toronto. He has published in the journals of Native American and Indigenous Studies and Cultural Studies and Critical Methodologies, and has a forthcoming article in Huili, Multidisciplinary Research on Hawaiian Wellbeing in American Indian Culture and Research Journal. He also has contributed chapters in the recently published Edited Collections Detours, A Decolonial Guide to Hawaii and Standing with Standing Rock, Voices from the Hashtag No Dapple Movement, and another chapter forthcoming in the edition collection Biopolitics, Geopolitics, and Life, Settler States and Indigenous Presences. Miley's research interests include history, law, and activism on Hawaiian sovereignty, indigenous critical theory, settler colonialism, political economy, feminist and queer theories, and decolonization. His book manuscript, Namakana Ea, Settler Colonial Capitalism and the Gifts of Sovereignty, examines the historical development and contemporary formation of settler colonial capitalism in Hawaii and gifts of serenity that seeks to overturn it by issuing responsibilities for balancing relationships with the aina, the land, and that which feeds. I would love for you to introduce yourself and talk a bit about your work, your scholarship, and allow you to contextualize how you came to be doing what you do today. Sure, I can definitely do that. So my name is Dr. Uohikea Maile. I'm from Maunuwili on the east side of Oahu Island in the archipelago of Hawaii. And my family is from the Moku Ko'olaupoko on the east side of that island in the Ahupua'a of Kailua, where my mom, who is just here in Toronto, is now returned back to Maunuwili, which is the ili of that Ahupua'a in that moku. And so that's the way I relate to where I come from. And now have found myself as an assistant professor here at the University of Toronto in the Dish with One Spoon territory. And the Dish with One Spoon is a treaty that governs social relationships, particularly between First Nations here, and also the way that non-Indigenous people and Indigenous people not of this territory are entering into engagements with the First Nations of this place that now has come to be known as Toronto or what previously was transformed from the Mohawk word Toronto. So I'm now an assistant professor of Indigenous politics at the University of Toronto I'm also an affiliate faculty in the Center for Indigenous Studies here at the University of Toronto, where I teach courses, for instance, this semester on Indigenous politics. I'm currently teaching a course that's new called Truth, Reconciliation, and Settler Colonialism. I'm very excited about the class, and I'm also excited to teach additional classes that are new next semester, one being Indigenous 
feminist and queer theories and the other being land and indigenous politics. So my teaching is all centered around indigenous politics here at the University of Toronto. For my own research, I'm interested particularly in Hawaiian sovereignty, in history, in law, in activism and social movements in contemporary times. I'm also interested in interrogating settler colonialism and capitalism and thinking through the politics of decolonization as it pertains to Kanaka Maoli or Native Hawaiians, which is the way we describe ourselves in our own language, Alolo Hawaii. So that's a little bit about my research, a little bit about my teaching, and a little bit about the place that I come from and how I've come to be on the Dish with One Spoon territory in Toronto. Yeah, those courses sound incredible. I was wondering if you could explain... I'm sure you grew up very politicized, given that settler colonialism directly affected your community. But how did you choose to go into academia within Indigenous politics? Yeah, that's a great question. I think that as a child, I was alienated from the particular ways that I've now come to understand my everyday lived existence along with other Indigenous people and furthermore, other marginalized and vulnerable populations across settler societies and nation states was a very highly political life. And that was something that as a child, I wasn't highly aware of. And it is quite an interesting path that I took to get to where I am and my kind of political sensibility being a Kanaka OEV, an Indigenous Hawaiian scholar, practitioner, and activist in Canada and a different settler state and in Toronto, but the path had many turns and twists. For me, a lot of my activist orientation and motivations and impetus for getting involved in organizing, whether that be my recent involvement in protecting our sacred mountain Mauna Awakea on the Big Island, Hawaii Island in the Hawaiian archipelago from the 30 meter telescope project. There's a current blockade that is vitally continuing and stopping any desecration and destruction from happening at the hands of this particular development project. Um, so that's something I've been a part of. And I've also been a part of organizing and activism in the Southwest where I was formerly located for seven years living in Albuquerque, New Mexico. I was organizer with the Red Nation, which is an indigenous-led activist coalition that is primarily focused upon liberating indigenous peoples from the violent grips of colonialism and capitalism. But I also was able to participate in organizing for Hawaiian sovereignty as a Kanaka Maoli away from home off island when in 2014 the Department of the Interior was going around Indian country and came along with the Department of Justice, the Office of Hawaiian Affairs, to Scottsdale, Arizona to ask about whether or not Hawaiians should be recognized according to U.S. federal Indian law and policy. So I went to Scottsdale to testify against that rule in 2014 and that, to me, has been an impetus and motivation that comes from my understanding of my own genealogy, my own mo'uku Hao, particularly with my great-great-grandparents, who were 
anti-annexationist organizers. So in the late 1800s, my great-great-grandfather was involved with different hui or organizations like hui kalai aina, like hui aloha aina, to stop annexation of the Hawaiian Islands by the United States. And so in 1897, for instance, my great-great-grandfather, C.B. Maile, was a part of an ad hoc group from the Hui Aloha Aina that was called um, the Committee o Kalehulehu, and it was the Citizens Committee is what it translates to. And this committee on, I believe it was October 8th, 1897, organized a mass rally in Hawaii to talk with the people, not just with the elites of the Hawaiian Kingdom, for instance, but with the people, the Lahui Kanaka, our nation of people, and ask the people how to go about stopping annexation. And so what came out of that mass rally and meeting was a document that was authored by my great-great-grandfather, C.B. Miley, and a number of other folks who were also involved in these different patriotic organizations, if you will, in drafting and finalizing a memorial that was sent to William L. McKinley, who is the president of the United States at that time, bent on annexing Hawaii so that he could have a coaling station to send ships between the west coast of the U.S. and the Philippines for the Spanish-American War. And so Hawaii was a vitally important location to McKinley. And so this document was given to McKinley in 1897. And my great-great-grandfather was involved in organizing people and writing it. My great-great-grandmother was a poet and wrote poetry and songs about radical Tanaka Maoli who took up arms after the Hawaiian kingdom was illegally overthrown. And they took up arms to take back their government and the islands that were being desecrated by white Euro-American businessmen and lawyers. And so my great-great-grandmother wrote and published poetry and music about these radical Hawaiians that went so far as to purchase weapons from the West Coast of the United States, San Francisco in particular, and try to take back the government that was suppressing the people and harming the Aina or the land in Hawaii. And so that really has motivated my activism, but also inspired my research. And so I see my writing and activism as mutually inclusive and informing one another. And in that sense, I have found great strength in a kind of scholarly activism that I've now pursued. Yeah, thank you for that. That's beautiful that you came from a very like militant ancestral lineage of organizers against the settler state. I wanted to talk more about your writing with regards to Mauna Kea. You recently yeah. wrote a piece for the publication Abolition called Precarious Performances, the 30-meter telescope and the settler state policing of Kanaka Maoli. And you start by going into a really informative history of how the state of Hawaii was founded on land stolen by the United States from Kanaka Aui and how the indigenous dispossessed under the system of settler colonialism are seen as criminals on their own land. 
Can you talk a little bit more about this and give our listeners a, a, a brief history of the struggle against the building of the TMT telescope in Mauna Kea? Yeah, so the article that you're referring to comes out of two interests that I had at the time. And the first was in conversation with critical theorist and decolonial writer Macarena Gomez Beres's book, The Extractive Zone, where she tracks the kinds of extractivist developments that are ongoing in Latin America that are opposed and challenged in incredible ways by especially indigenous peoples of these particular nations and has an amazing discussion about the ways in which colonial nation states not only dispossess indigenous peoples of their ancestral lands and territories and resources, but also have a knack, if you will, for ongoing extraction of these resources, territories, and lands by not just outright spectacular violence and genocide, but by incarcerating and criminalizing these indigenous peoples so that they're not only removed, but as subjects always already classified and categorized as subjects to be removed. And so it enables the process of settler economies to accumulate massive amounts of capital, even while indigenous people have endured histories of colonial violence and genocide. And in many cases, remained on their ancestral lands and territories, despite modes of capitalist development that have transited there. And so that's kind of the first interest I had in the piece was thinking about the protection of our sacred mountain Mauna Kea or Mauna Awa Kea in not just the critique of settler colonial capitalism as I've done in the past, but moving beyond to think about how astronomy industry development at our sacred mountain and not just Mauna Awa Kea, but as in the piece I show, another sacred mountain, Haleakala on Maui, how astronomy industry development is not just one telescope observatory, but actually a structure, right? So riffing off of settler colonial theorists and anthropologist Patrick Wolf's settler colonialism is a structure, not an event. Astronomy industry development in Hawaii is a structure, not just one telescope observatory. And mm -hmm. part of the story about this structure is the way in which the settler state of Hawaii or the state of Hawaii, which is the 50th so-called state of the U.S., criminalizes Kanaka Maoli, Native Hawaiians, who are defending our sacred mountain and kin relatives from destruction and desecration. And so the criminalization repeatedly of these kia'i, these guardians, is a practice of not just dispossessing our national lands, of which Mauna Kea is land that was stolen from the Hawaiian kingdom, but actually restricting our movements through settler state police tactics on this particular land, this storied place that we have always known 
as our ancestor and relative that continues to live despite the fact that it's always rendered inanimate and something that can be built upon to colonize not just that place, but also to conquer other galaxies. And the practice of criminalizing Kia'i has been taking new shapes recently. And so the abolition piece talks about how in 2015, 2016, 2017, settler state policing tactics were going through particular iterations that, as I argue in the article, were precarious performances that the settler state enunciated as a way to assert its territorial authority to not only incarcerate and criminalize Native Hawaiians that are attempting to preserve their relationship to this relative and this storied place of theirs, but also to sanction the 30-meter telescope. And so bringing in not just police power to criminalize Native Hawaiians, but also to enable a multinational corporation to build on land was a way that I saw in 2015, 2016, and 2017 for the state of Hawaii itself to claim and articulate a form of territorial sovereignty, which ultimately revealed a kind of anxiety and nervousness, if you will, about the settler state's own origins and its own legitimacy to govern this particular place. And so what we see now in 2019 with a new blockade forming in July of 2019 on the 15th, which is a day I arrived in Hawaii on the Big Island and showed up at the blockade on July 15th, we're seeing different kinds of responses by police forces from the state of Hawaii that are actually new in this struggle. So for instance, one example, and, and then I'll, I'll, I'll stop, <laughs> um, is that uh, there have been reports that state police have been trying to incite conflict at the blockade, which is an ongoing blockade at the base of Mauna Kea, um, across the highway, Daniel K. Noy Highway in, in Hilo, from the access road's main entrance that is the only main road which construction crews and kia'i alike can ascend to Mauna Kea. And so this pu'uhonua, or this refuge and sanctuary that was established at the base of Mauna Kea is not actually on Mauna Kea like previous blockades have been established. It is at 6,000 feet elevation versus 9,000 feet, which is where the visitor center is, or 14,000 feet, which is the um, summit. And the summit is where there are already uh, telescopes and telescope observatories. But the 30-meter telescope is trying to be built at the northern plateau, which is not at the summit region. It's actually um, at the northern plateau off to the side the road that takes one up to the summit region. So it's undisturbed at the moment. There are no telescopes. There are no telescope observatories. And the land itself 
is not cinder cone. It's actually lava rock. So it's, it's a very different, unique kind of geological landscape at the northern plateau versus the summit. But in any case, the blockade is not there. It's at the base of Mauna Kea and mm-hmm. has been going on since July 15th formally. And the state has not been able to open up the road. But what they're doing now, for instance, is they're trying to incite conflict in the Pu'uhonua by having state police officers question whether or not Kia'i, who mm-hmm. are reoccupying this space and in the Pu'uhonua, are folks that should be ejected from it. And so this is a, like FBI cointel pro tactic to mm-hmm. um, get activists to turn on one another and start to eject people from the blockade. And um, this has been identified, reports have come out, but it's a new kind of policing tactic that the state is using to open up the road and allow TMC construction crews to ascend that Mauna Kea access road and to start beginning construction of this massive 30 meter telescope project. Yeah, thank you for that. Yeah, and I think that's like always been a tactic of like hegemonic powers is to kind of incite infighting amongst oppressed groups um, in order to divide them and so that they won't be able to uprise against the state. And I find your framework of capitalist colonialism to be really useful in this regard because, you know, from what I've read, a lot of the arguments for building the TMT have to do with kind of scientific development. And and when you look at the history of scientific development in the U.S., so many things have its origins and sources in supporting the military and supporting like U.S. imperial expansion. So I was wondering if you could go more into this theoretical framework of what you describe as capitalist colonialism and How do you see these systems of capitalism and colonialism fundamentally intertwined, both in Hawaii and also in other struggles, you know, transnationally or even just in the in the United States? Yeah, so I see settler colonial capitalism in three particular ways, at least the first and most general being a notion to describe settler societies and settler states' political economies. And the second being a little bit more complex in that it is not just a notion or kind of concept or framework to describe the political economy of settler nations, but one that is much more deeply rooted in capitalism itself. And so I'm incredibly dedicated um, and and thankful to the theorization of settler colonial capitalism by Yellowknife Dene scholar Glenn Coulthard, who's a professor of First Nation Studies at the University of British Columbia. And in his book, um, Red Skin, White Masks, he lays out this theoretical intervention of bridging how we can see capitalist modes of production, accumulation of massive amounts of wealth, not just by individuals, but corporations, and the development projects that not only exploit vulnerable populations' labor, but also exploit the land itself 
upon which they develop on. So he discusses how the condition of possibility for capitalism is settler colonialism. And so he says, kind of rethinking the way that Karl Marx famously came to theorize and write and discuss capital hinged upon his thesis of primitive accumulation, whereby non-capitalist forms of life are violently transformed into capitalist ones. Mm -hmm. And that process depended upon a dual engine. And Marx, in kind of Coulthard's understanding, says that it depended on the proletarianization Mm -hmm. of agricultural producers whom have had in the 16th century in in Europe, for instance, um, land enclosed upon and privatized. And so those agricultural workers become workers in this process of proletarianization. So they are forced to enter a labor market where they sell their labor for a wage. And Coulthard says that it it isn't just proletarianization that animates capitalist modes of production, but it's it's the second part of Marx's formulation, which is Mm -hmm. um, dispossession of land. So Mm -hmm. Coulthard really pivotally shifts away from thinking about kind of the the wage slaves and thinking about the colonial dispossession that provides capital a really key condition of possibility, which is land. And so Coulthard thinks about in this book and other work that he's done about the ways in which capitalism as a system of power and a social relation is structured upon not just the dispossession of so-called like agricultural producers that then have to enter labor markets, but upon the colonial dispossession of indigenous peoples. And so settler colonial capitalism for Marx is this system that's much more capacious than saying that it is different than that, like settler colonialism is somehow mutually exclusive from capitalism. Mm, So he kind of like thinks about it that in that way. And so the third for me um, comes out of archival research that I've been working on in Hawaii that thinks through the ways in which colonial capital settles in the Hawaiian Islands. And I argue in my research that settler colonial capital, this like third iteration of the framework I'm charting out, um, is, it refers to actually the money form of capital. And so in Hawaii, in the kind of early 1840s, monetary currency was introduced into the Hawaiian kingdom's political economy and policy around taxation and adopted as a way to balance responsibilities between the ali'i, the chiefs, the rulers of the Hawaiian kingdom and the maka'inana or the common people and citizens. And so in my archival research, I talk about how this was a formative historical moment that opened up conditions of possibility for the settlement of Hawaii. And so the shift in balancing responsibilities 
between the Ali'i and the Makai Nana were also a commentary on the shift in responsibilities between Kanaka Maulid's people and the Aina land. And so the taxes transformed and transitioned from different kinds of ho'okupu, like ritualized offerings and makana and like gifts to money. And it started with the Spanish dollar because, for instance, the Hawaiian kingdom had a debt to Spain and pegged the currency according to the nation of Spain's economic policy so that they could balance that relationship between countries, between sovereign nations. In any case, the change in political economics in the Hawaiian kingdom was pivotal in kind of creating a new system of governance that haole or especially white foreigners that settled in Hawaii could exploit for their benefit, not just of purchasing land that was later privatized in the Hawaiian kingdom, but also for talking about the ways in which the Hawaiian kingdom's rulers were despotic tyrants that needed to introduce and implement kind of the mechanisms and practices of capitalism so that Mm -hmm. the country and the, the indigenous primitives in that country could be modernized. But it was a way in which Paule, who were political theorists, um, uh, missionaries, could latch on to power, not just acquiring territory, but political power in the Hawaiian kingdom, and used this particular moment as a way to bring about kind of changes in the Hawaiian kingdom's um, governance that later trickled down into how the Hawaiian kingdom was illegally overthrown. And so settler colonial capitalism kind of, for me, means those three things. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I think that's really important. We need, do you feel like there's a lack of kind of indigenous interventions in Marxist theory? Because this is, I mean, it's such an important framework, but I don't, I guess, like in more mainstream academic sources, I don't really see enough indigenous interventions. Yeah, I would say that there certainly are important interventions being made by critical indigenous theorists around Marxism. Um, not just Glenn Coltard, but Mohawk scholar Audra Simpson, um, Lakota scholar Nick Estes. There, there are lots of folks that are taking up Marxism and pushing even beyond the way that Coltard has talked about it. And so one kind of call and response my own research has taken from Coltard is to rethink the kind of colonial functions of capitalism and not just to think about it in historical terms that bring us back to like Europe, for instance, Mm -hmm. but to think about it in contemporary times in which living indigenous people and their thriving communities and nations are having to face down the butts of rifles or maybe as a more um, recent accurate uh, depiction, having to face down 
long-range acoustic devices because of the way that settler states are attempting to engage in corporate development projects that are centered on kind of new modes of capitalist exploitation and um, the accumulation of profit. So I think that there are more folks now kind of being highlighted as kind of critical indigenous thinkers that are trained in Marxism or like radical leftist thinking and critiques of capital that are taking up not just the theoretical intervention, but taking up the labor and responsibility and obligations of considering the really complex grittiness of on the ground struggles. And that's something that Nick Estes does, that Audra Simpson does, that Coulthard does, and what I'm trying to do in my own work in interrogating the 30 meter telescope project. However, it certainly is a academic battle in which indigenous kind of critical theorists in academies are constantly um, degraded, if you will, for the ways in which we borrow and are selectively promiscuous with Marxist theorizing. And Mm -hmm. um, that's not something that kind of like white, like political theorists have to deal with because of, um, simply put, the settler societies in which we interact and engage with one another. Because for us, we're not just engaged with kind of abstract political theorizing that makes interventions just for domains of thought and knowledge to be produced, but really for our people and for our communities and to actually make change on the literal grounds in which we are on and the communities and those grounds that we come from. So for instance, for me, um, I'm taking my time here in Toronto to actually work on the divestment aspect of this movement to stop the 30 meter telescope project by advocating for the Canadian consortium that has financially and kind of in research advocated for the 30 meter telescope on Mauna Kea. And so I'm trying to not just let my critique sit at the level of critique, but to go a step further and actually use that critique to stop these astronomy organizations from funding 30 meter telescope and to have them pull out their advocacy for the TMT to be built on Mauna Kea. In your research and in your work in divestment from more, you know, iterations of settler violence, including the TMT telescope, have you done work with also divestment campaigns with regards to boycott divestment and sanctions, divesting from the Israeli state in Palestine solidarity work? Yeah, so I'm I'm a sig- signatory on kind of like the BDS campaign. And I've also worked with the Red Nation in Albuquerque that has sent delegates to Palestine with different Palestinian liberation organizations. And um, as a quick anecdote, just because I'm not there and I'm in Toronto right now, Mm -hmm. there recently 
as recent as like maybe two days ago, there was a delegation from Palestine, I believe, that went to Mauna Kea and to the Puuhonua to kind of show cross-solidarity with Kanaka Maoli because there mm-hmm. also are multiple Kia'i at the Puuhonua that have recently gone to Palestine in in different iterations to show solidarity, not just by kind of signing on to the divestment boycott and sanctions movement, but to actually go and create those relationships with Palestinians on Palestinian land in opposition to the Israeli settler state, one that I think Hawaiians that are now coming to terms with Hawaiian sovereignty and the fake state of Hawaii, as it's described, are making connections with the ways in which there are other fake states and the magic Mm -hmm. and myths that states like Israel tell about itself have similar structures and genres and aesthetics to the magics and myths that the state of Hawaii tells itself or the U.S. settler state tells itself or the Canadian settler state tells itself. And so there's a group of Hawaiian intellectuals and professors that have been highly involved in uh, the BDS campaign, like my mentor, Keholani Kaunui, um, but others as well have been incredibly involved with the BDS campaign. And I think there are beginning to be much more grassroots connections being made between the kinds of settler violence that happens in Israel and the kind of settler violence that happens elsewhere in different settler societies, even like Hawaii. Yeah, that's incredible. The cross-delegation solidarity work happening, that's that's really inspiring. I was wondering if I could also go into your other work that has to do with media representation of Indigenous folks, specifically Indigenous Hawaiians. You wrote an article called Going Native, South Park Satire, Settler Colonialism, and Hawaiian Indigeneity, and you talk about how a particular episode of South Park attempts to but fails at criticizing settler colonialism in Hawaii. Could you talk about how media representation reifies existing structures of settler colonialism and how your work deals with that? Yeah, so that article was very particular in an analysis of one South Park episode wherein the episode kind of hinges on this key satirical parody and it represents non-native white people in Hawaii claiming to be native Hawaiians. So the parody emerges at the, the performance of being Hawaiian that's clearly not true. And so that the, the producers kind of talk through the parody as, you know, it's very clear that there's these tourists that in the episode are calling themselves Native Hawaiians and that they're the object of the joke. They're the, the joke itself. But mm-hmm. my analysis thinks about how the laughter to the joke in this particular media representation actually reproduces the settlement of Hawaii, which the parody is attempting to make fun of, and that 
as I argue, and um, others have kind of pointed me to this, you know, decolonization is not a satire, right? Like when the symbol of decolonization is ripped away from indigenous people and repurposed for humor in this kind of media representation, it, and we laugh about it, it loses the material kind of rage and resentment and fervor that indigenous forms of decolonization demand, right? Mm -hmm. And so there's no kind of liberatory social relationship that's produced in the laughter to humor that is racist or sexist or colonialist. And so my analysis of those media representations kind of thinks through the ways in which parody and satire can reify, even though trying to poke fun at settler colonialism, can reify it in the kind of aesthetic genre that it attempts to um, undermine. And so that was something that I wrote a while ago and um, was interested in kind of like the particulars of this episode, because I also saw a lot of my friends and family remarking about it and laughing about it and thinking that it was really radical and I didn't <laughs> and I thought that right. it was actually um, very offensive and so media representations for me were a place to consider the constructions of indigeneity but also the constructions of settler colonialism and in kind of the indigenous studies scene there is a constant debate around thinking through how for instance settler colonial studies is really white or abstracts indigeneity or takes for granted relationships to land and place. So the episode for me was a mirror to thinking about how even a joke about settler colonialism could still implement the kind of settlement of indigenous people's lands on a representational level and then create a liberal mode to relate to that settlement, which takes for granted the stakes, the material stakes of indigenous decolonization. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's... But it. I also think... Oh, sorry, go ahead. No, no, you go ahead. I also think that media representations um, outside of the realm of like South Park and parody and satire in the movement to protect Mauna Lakea right now are um, really prevalent because the battle for our sacred mountain is actually being waged incredibly in the realm of representations, whether it's the way that the governor of Hawaii, David Ige, talks about Hia'i. So when I was there mm -hmm. in July, um, I want to say if it was the end of the first week or the beginning of the second week, the governor received quote unquote reports that allegedly stated we, including myself because I was there, we, the Kia'i, and this is Ige's thought, were drinking alcohol, were doing drugs, and were existing in this space in unclean ways. So news media picked up on the way that he enunciated this report, um, purposefully so, right? And mm -hmm. started to disseminate this like horrible myth that the Hawaiian protesters are drug-addicted alcoholics that are not cleaning up their porta-potties, 
Wow. And and so the way that that played out was really quite scary and dangerous because the governor at the time was looking for rationale to justify sending in the National Guard, wow. which he did deploy to Mauna Kea. And it was a way for not only him to kind of enunciate that, but also for news media to circulate it and then settler society in Hawaii to feel a kind of emergency. And so eventually a state of emergency was declared in Hawaii that gave police heightened power and it gave the National Guard heightened power to evacuate all of the Kia'i at the blockade. Luckily, that didn't fully happen ever, but the way in which representations of indigeneity were articulated by the governor of the state and then dispersed by news media and just everyday people were abhorrent and Mm -hmm. ultimately kind of told this other story about the precarious performance of settler state power in policing, but really around the anxiety over indigenous people reoccupying their land. Yeah, absolutely. And I think like like violent media portrayal and, and propaganda is so fundamental to how settler colonialism works. But that's, yeah, that sounds really terrifying. This just like so much power in like state propagation of this idea that like protesters are, are violent and um, just like yeah. really nasty. I was wondering if uh, you could also talk about the term Ea. We actually did an interview with Dr. Goodyear Bea, and she's incredible, and she wrote this incredible 100-page guide about how Ea, like how to implement Ea in our praxis and ideology, and especially for Hawaiian sovereignty. I was wondering, because it's such a, it's such a beautiful term, and I was wondering if you could give your definition of what Ea means to you and how you've used it in your work and in your activism and in your praxis? I think if you've interviewed Noi Gudrakopua, who's a dear friend and mentor of mine, <laughs> she actually was on my dissertation oh, committee. Wow. <laughs> and she and I were on Mauna Kea at the same time. And as you probably know by now, she, along with another faculty member from the Department of Political Science at mm-hmm. UH, where she's a professor and department chair, both chained themselves to a cattle guard wow. gate in the first day of the occupation Mm -hmm. and they were chained for hours and hours and hours she also was was chained alongside her her kane her husband um Mm -hmm. imai winchester and in any case like noi is the expert (laughs) (laughs) and so as as i'm sure you know you were exposed to um noi's work around kind of historically tracking ea and thinking about its praxis in contemporary time is phenomenal. And I really mm-hmm. look up to her work about this. Um, and so I won't take up too much space in that discussion because I think that her work um, should be highlighted more than mine. But mm-hmm. I will say for me, um, Aya means kind of an ability and practice that is shape-shiftingly dynamic to breathe and live in a relational sense with human and non-human social actors 
in particular in the archipelago of Hawaii. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's kind of like a definition broadly how I see Ea, because as I'm sure Noi and you had a discussion about, Ea can be translated in multiple ways. It's yeah. a word in Olelo Hawaii that has multiple meanings and can mean breath, to breathe, to, to live, independence, autonomy, but also to rise. Mm-hmm. And um, so for me personally, I like to think about Ea in relationship to my, my um, Inoa Hawaii, my Hawaiian name. And so my name, Uahikea, is a shorter version for my full name, which is Uahikea Ikaleohu. And so Uahikea translates to and kind of can be interpreted as uh, white smoke. Um, Uahi means smoke, and then kea can mean white, and so white smoke. But the white smoke is actually a poetic reference to um, mist that plumes from a cloud formation. And so wahi kea is a poetic reference for the kaleohu, which is the lay of clouds, or the circle of clouds, running into a steep cliffside of a mountain and then engaging in this process of orthographic lift whereby Mm -hmm. the cloud formation hits the side of a steep cliff of a mountain and then creates a plume effect and that plume that is from the lay of clouds is the uahike it's the white smoke that Mm -hmm. comes from the clouds interaction with the mountain and that's the way that I have come to understand the composer of my name's um, poetic reference to Uahikea but the 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 air in the the kea actually describes the rising of the cloud itself and kind of describes this process of interaction between more than human forms of life that then is kind of mapped on to me and then the way that I've also come to think about sovereignty and come to participate in Hawaiian sovereignty um, activism and organizing um, to me the definition of Ea to rise is one of the most important components of thinking about Hawaiian sovereignty. And so it also helps me to think about my own rising, not just like personally with my name, but in the ways in which um, I care for my community, whether it's people or a mountain. Yeah, that's that's so profoundly beautiful. And I'm sure there are ways in which Ea can even be translated into English because yeah. of how repressive of a language it is. But I mean, she she talked about like how, yeah, there's so many different definitions of it. But one in particular that I really loved was she, was she said that it's also considered like the breath that like a whale takes when it comes up to get air. Mm. You know, it's just very, very beautiful translations and and definition. I just have a couple more questions because I don't want to keep you long, but your work is really, really incredible and and super rich. And I was wondering how you balance 
writing, researching, your archival work, and of course your incredible activism. How do you balance that? And how do you kind of uh, combat this? Sometimes like organizers become very nihilistic about the state of the world because of, because of how, you know, like how oppressive the conditions can be. But how do you combat that? And how do you just keep up your incredible life work? <laughs> This is a really hard question, and um, I will say that my life right now is imbalanced, <laughs> to just be yeah. honest. It's hard to do the work I want to do for my community away from it, period. And I'm being given kuleana or like obligations for my community in the struggle to protect our mountain um, by being here. And one of them is to like, tell the story as Kalei Kaeo has famously told me at the Puuhonua recently, but to tell the story of what's going on and to proliferate our narratives and our perspectives and our points of views about how we're not, right? For instance, uh, dirty, drug-addicted alcoholics mm-hmm. that are violent protesters, but then on the other hand, um, to actually engage in like a divestment campaign here in Canada. That's something I'm really invested in doing with yeah. my time here. And the problem that arises is that there there is kind of a imbalance in um, my kind of like physical relation to the struggle. And, and that's okay. And, you know, my Aya doesn't fizzle out when I leave Hawaii. Like we are recognized as sovereign people and my air doesn't stop breathing when I leave the Paiaina, the archipelago, but it definitely creates um, some personal hardships around um, the work, you know, so Mm -hmm. being a part of a collective struggle and having a kind of expropriation of that collectivity if you will is a, is a difficult process and it's it is sort of hard to find balance but i am um, also just being in a new country and in a new position as an assistant professor no longer a graduate student mm-hmm. and kind of experiencing a lot of rapid changes that um i'm trying to balance out and so for instance how do i balance the work writing and like the teaching with Kind of organizing and whatnot um i'll be back at mona Kea at the end of october and awesome, yeah. i'll be there just for a little while and then i'm planning to finish out the semester here in toronto and go back for basically all of december um and i think that that will be balancing for me is to be on the aina with my fellow kanaka maoli and kia'i at mona Kea. Um, Mm -hmm. but for now, part of what helps me to try to balance all of this is to do the work that I am called and responsible for doing here. And so one of my projects is to really teach students at the University of Toronto about settler colonialism. It is not a term or theory that is taken very seriously in these kinds of um, extremely prestigious academic institutions. Mm -hmm. And while 
liberal Canada does a good job at trying to perform reconciliation, um, that performance is incredibly hollow. And so I'm trying to really dive deeper into teaching students, not just about theories and critiques of settler colonialism, but the performances of reconciliation that are performances that re-entrench colonial power Um, so that's one kind of task I have being here as a not a first nation person in these territories of Ontario and Toronto and Canada that have been now called these names Um, and also I'm hoping to get more involved in organizing here you know Toronto is a kind of Mm -hmm. thriving like activist hub and nexus so um, I'm gonna start to provide labor in helping to organize the abolition convergence that's happening in May this mm-hmm. summer. Oh, wow. Um, and so that's a project that I'm going to help and start participating in. That's awesome. Thank you so much for sharing that. I guess one of my last questions is, how can allies best put our bodies and our efforts to use against settler colonialism, especially in the struggle against the TMT telescope to protect Mauna Kea? and to oppose capitalism as well? Yeah, there's two really direct encouragements I'd offer. The first being showing up and making sacrifices. And that could be as simple as going to the Pu'uhonua and showing up for Kanaka Maoli and listening and participating in the life there because it is one that is fundamentally of like anti-capitalist and anti-colonial but also that we're nice and you can join us but there are rules Mm -hmm. to that process and it isn't one of kind of returning to the commons but it's one of returning to the the malu or the shade and protection of Mauna Kea literally physically but also thinking about how that protection bestows not just Kanaka Maoli that are at the Puhonua, but non-Kanaka allies that are there with uh, incredible like obligation mm-hmm. to the land there, which is not one about kind of recentering yourself or not one about, I don't know, like taking selfies and like posting it on yeah. Instagram and social media to kind of propagate these ideas that you're liberal and progressive, but it's about getting to work and listening when you're told what to do and helping the elders. And I've seen a lot of non-Kanaka allies that have taken up that call and have provided support as either Kapu'aloha folks that kind of mediate between the police and Kia'i. And that's a whole nother discussion that mm-hmm. has interesting complexities, but there are non-Kanaka that do that work. And then there's also non-Kanaka that have been Kako'o or the support people to help take care of individual and sometimes multiple kupuna and elders. So that's the kind of work that we need people for. And the more, the merrier in some sense with that work. So that's, that's kind of the first thing I'd, I'd offer as encouragement. Um, And um, secondarily, I think that labor practices around kind of solidarity are really important 
in divestment campaigns. So for mm-hmm. instance, I think that settler allies should kind of investigate what participation they might have, say, for example, on U.S. campuses at universities or Canadian universities in TMT, because there are a lot of U.S. and Canadian universities that have a stake in the TMT project. And so investigating that kind of like structural participation, but then also organizing on those campuses to call on the universities to divest. And I've been seeing that happen um, across Canada and in the U.S. Um, And it's very heartening. I mean, we need folks at each of these campuses, if something is to go down, to show up and to make sacrifices and to help in this where you are. Mm -hmm. And so the time will come for demonstrations and also the time is now to call on those universities to divest. And the more voices, the louder that call can be. Thank you so much. I was wondering if your community or in in either Toronto or in Hawaii, if you had any plans for Indigenous Peoples Day, if there's any particular way you celebrate. So typically I am celebrating Indigenous Peoples Day in like kind of a U.S. imaginary, right? Mm -hmm. So as a quick example, with the Red Nation um, in Albuquerque helped to abolish Columbus Day in the city of Albuquerque a few years ago. And we were on a streak to try to abolish Columbus Day at the University of New Mexico. And then that trickled into abolishing the University of New Mexico's official seal that has a conquistador and a frontiersman, both Mm -hmm. with like weapons. One had a gun, one had a sword. So anyway, that's kind of like how I've spent my Indigenous Peoples Days, um, is organizing with the Red Nation, particularly in Albuquerque. And so we've done you know, big events and marches and demonstrations and have launched different campaigns from Indigenous Peoples Day. And so they're going to be doing some amazing work tomorrow in Mm -hmm. Albuquerque. But, you know, in Hawaii, there's work that happens around this. And in Canada, tomorrow, it is not Indigenous Peoples Day. Mm. They celebrate Indigenous Peoples Day here in the summer. Okay. So tomorrow, I am desperately looking for to go to Um, But luckily, uh, I have another interview that I'm doing with um, Moccasin Tracks, which is a public radio show that comes out of the University of Vermont. So I'm going to be talking um, with viewers of that radio show live tomorrow Mm -hmm. about kind of very similar things that we've discussed today and in relationship on also on Indigenous Peoples Day. So I will have that as something to energize myself on Indigenous Peoples Day. Absolutely. That sounds awesome. Thank you so much, Dr. Miley, for the time you put out for today to to be interviewed and sharing just so much knowledge about your work and about the struggle and about how we can best put our bodies on the front lines. I really, really deeply appreciate the the time you took out. (laughs) Yeah, for sure. Thanks so much, Griff, for your time as well.